as I look in magazines, young architects are, are once again too preoccupied with individual self-expression, too obsessed with the role of computer technology, um, which can liberate form to an extraordinary level, but doesn't tend to bring along the, the needs, the emotional and physical needs in the best possible way of people who are not in control of their destinies, who are not living on uh, fleeing the city for the Hudson River Valley, but who are still back here uh, needing housed and appreciated for whom they are and given a chance to fulfill their best possible destinies. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel. All the elements of a well-lived life. A quick note, stay up to date on all the latest episodes of The Grand Tourist by signing up with your email at thegrandtourist.net. My guest today has been a force in American architecture for decades, with the career and firm that has helped to define styles, train and educate legions of designers, and contributed to the culture at large in so many ways. Robert A.M. Stern. In his five-plus decades of practice, he's designed multiple towers in New York, museums across the country, public buildings, presidential centers, universities, luxury hotels, office buildings, urban master plans, and more homes than anyone can count. A native of New York, Stern got his master's at Yale where he was taught by legends Philip Johnson and Paul Rudolph, and would later return to the school as an educator and eventually dean of the School of Architecture. While no longer dean, he teaches there to this day. Stern's life and career has impacted so much of what we would consider pivotal moments in 20th century architectural history. As a young curator, he heralded the upcoming careers of his groundbreaking contemporaries. And as a practicing architect, he helped define postmodernism and later shaped the arrival of what Stern calls modern traditionalism, now a signature of his award-winning firm. His life has been wonderfully detailed in his new memoir published by Monticelli and co-written by Leo Villardi called Between Memory and Invention, My Journey in Architecture. The richly illustrated book took Stern years to write, and he details his life in honest, colorful ways. I caught up with Robert Stern from his home in Manhattan to talk about his time as a student, the birth of postmodernism, his unlikely friendship with Zaha Hadid, and so much more. New York plays such a large role in your book and also in your life and career. Um, as a native New Yorker, can you tell me your earliest memory of the city? Um, I really can't pinpoint exactly when my recollections of the city begin, but I certainly know that as a young fellow traveled from Brooklyn, where I was raised, to Manhattan often. Manhattan was always referred to in our family as the city. Brooklyn was not the city in that sense. And that would have occurred, I don't know, when I was, 10, let's just say, 10 years old. But I try to say in the book, and I've said elsewhere how I used to travel on the subway uh, uh, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, and a portion of it was elevated uh, over the Gowanus Canal, to be exact. And from if you stood in those days in the front car of the train, uh, I could look out the window and see the city unfold before we dipped back into a tunnel. I do remember that vividly. As an architect who studies the urban environment, if you had to explain to a young architect 
how the city has changed so massively over time, what would you say? Well, before the pandemic, the extreme density and a robust population of the city was very different from when I was growing up. Ironically, I would say the city was in some ways more like the after the pandemic. It was a quieter place. Now, of course, when I would go into the city, uh, it would be a, a Saturday or a Sunday. So that the, we would travel, I, might, I would go with my parents or, and walk around Wall Street area, the financial district, and it was as quiet as a tomb. There was nothing happening uh, on the weekends. The city was very, the skyline of the city was totally different when I was growing up and until high school years. Lower Manhattan hadn't changed much at all. Um, and so you had the pinnacles of the 1920s and early 30s skyscrapers dominating the skyline like a mountain range. Um, and then you had a big dip and then another explosion of verticality in Midtown. Um, but then um, after around 1960, the time of, say, the construction of the Chase Manhattan Bank Building, which was a big physical imposition on the skyline, uh, the skyline began to change and the kind of flat top box-like buildings, which I have come to abhor, and many New Yorkers do share that abhorrence with me, began to wipe out the romance or compromise the romance of those mountain-like pinnacles of the 1920s and 30s. You write in the book that your parents were probably horrified that you wanted to become an architect. Can you explain uh, why that was? Well, I think they knew nothing about but what an architect did, really. My father had some uh, experience of architects in, 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 in the 1920s and 30s, I guess. Um, they didn't think it was a very profitable venture. Typically, nice middle-class Jewish kids became doctors or lawyers or teachers. Architects, there weren't so many Jewish architects uh, to refer to. So I think um, uh, that probably um, figured in, although I don't remember any explicit conversation like that. I do remember having a conversation like about the role of Jews in architecture with um, Adolf Plotchek, the Avery librarian, who was a mentor to me by the time I got to Columbia as an undergraduate. And he would um, say there weren't many. And I'd say, well, what about Mendelssohn? What about, um, and then Mukan came, became, a figure. So suddenly the role of the uh, uh, of uh, uh, Jewish architects grew in the uh, lore of American practice. Before we return to Robert, a word from our partner, Polyform. With its Italian roots dating back to 1970, Polyform is the ultimate purveyor of design-driven products that outfit nearly every inch of the modern home, from its stunning kitchens and dreamlike storage systems to sleek and inviting sofas. Using decades of knowledge and a mastery of Italian style, Polyform's incredible designs go beyond the ephemeral trends we see so often today. Instead, they exude a kind of recognizable elegance you'd expect from a company headquartered in Brianza, near Lake Como. As the grand tourist is always shopping for his next remodel or just dreaming about it, Polyform has many instant icons to consider. As no living room is complete without an eye-catching armchair, Polyform's Le Club is my ideal. Imagine a classical club chair, but instead of a heavy, boxy affair, this design by French designer Jean-Marie Massaud has distilled the concept into a curvy, minimalist line that's perfectly upholstered, usually in leather. The chair seems to float in place, and you will too, especially if you choose the optional footrest. 
For more information about Le Club and all of the brand's incredible works of design, visit polyform.com. And when you were studying at Yale, uh, you wrote that Paul Rudolph gave you a kind of like a warning and suggested that you not get, quote, sucked into the MoMA crowd. Uh, why do you think he gave you that little piece of advice? Well, uh, it turned it off. The idea of the MoMA crowd, I think, was more of a turnoff from Paul than it was for me. <laughs> but he, he could see that because of my friendship with Philip Johnson and going down to the MoMA and getting um, and, and, and going up to Philip was then still, as I recall, the chairman of the Department of Architecture at the Museum of Modern Art, even though he was an independent practice. Of course, Philip Johnson was very rich. And so everything that he could, he did was he, he did um, with little regard to, uh, to the realities of the weekly paycheck, shall we say. Um, but uh, Paul could see that I might um, end up like uh, uh, other recent Yale graduates, like Wilder Green, who became a, a curator at the MoMA. And he thought that that would be a, a detour, that he thought, I guess he thought I had more to offer architecture than just looking at other people's architecture. And somewhat ironically, after you graduated, you actually did some curatorial work at the Architecture League uh, for a show called 40 Under 40. Philip Johnson arranged that, engineered that. That's when I believe Paul Rudolph said, be, beware of not getting sucked into the MoMA crowd, you know, martini lunches with trustees. The trustees were, in those days, really glamorous people of great wealth and sophistication. Uh, I'm not sure the trustees of these museums are quite the same caliber of uh, commitment to the museum, the degree that, that, that prevailed back in the late 50s and 60s. Can you walk us through that show in your memory and what those talents that you picked for the show, you know, meant to you and to architecture at that time? Well, it was an exhibition of 40 young architects under 40 years of age. Uh, it echoed an exhibition that had been occurred at the museum, at the Architectural League, just around 1940 or 41, I can't remember. So there was a precedent for it. In any case, I, um, working with Philip Johnson, and others, uh, two other architects on a committee, but principally Philip Johnson. I vetted all my choices um, with Philip, and he was—he never contradicted my decisions. And I picked really well. Only a couple of architects whom I included in the show um, uh, turned out to not be of the same caliber, and I was able to uh, identify amazing new talents: Richard Meyer. Peter Eisenman, Jacqueline Robertson, Stanley Tigerman, a host of others, many of whom had close connections to Yale. And I had seen, um, you know, um, uh, at Yale coming back for the design reviews or whatever. And, and Robert Venturi, who I um, uh, discovered for my, um, really, I could say, I think, honestly, did discover um, uh, as an important figure. And um, I, I included all these people in the show, and it turned out to be a pretty good selection. I, I was spot on. Um, I, I was a good picker. And, you know, we all change a little bit over time. Uh, you know, looking back, what were, you, what were you like as a young, hungry architect, you know, just starting out? I was probably a real pain in the ass. I certainly didn't lack for opinions. A, a few years later, 
uh, when the Architectural League, which is a, a membership organization in New York that goes back to the 1880s, 1881 to be exact, and which was founded to give young architects um, a, 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 a place in the, in the emerging profession uh, uh, at that time. The League had had some financial setbacks. Uh, a lot of people did. The markets crashed in the late 60s and early 70s. And I was brought in. I was asked to become the president of the League. I was flattered. I, and I worked with the support of another architect who had been my teacher at Yale, Ulrich Franzen, and other, other architects. And we mounted programs, public programs, lectures, weekly seminars, and so forth and brought the place up to speed. But at the same time, Peter Eisenman, well, with others, was founding the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies. And his orientation was European intellectual role, the, the role of European intellectual architects in the profession, a young architect. My orientation was on architects who built things, architects who were out in the, in the world, um, who saw how people used cities, um, who were influenced by Jane Jacobs, for example. So we had these two organizations in New York, which were very exciting, the juxtaposition of the two of them. Nothing like that exists today. And so what encouraged you to make that leap to becoming a practicing architect? Well, the League was a one-year appointment, and it was never in my mind to do anything but go from there into some office, which I did it. Uh, into Richard Myers for a while. I'm not really good at working for other people, but I did survive Richard's um, very small office for a while. And then um, uh, ultimately, uh, through family connections, um, got some small projects uh, in those days. I always wanted to be a practicing architect, I, I should say. And the, the image of a practicing architect for many of us at Yale at that time was not someone in a big corporate firm like Skidmore, and Merrill, but someone in a small firm with a design uh, orientation working on houses. It was still, the, it was very much the suburban generation. New Canaan, Connecticut was the center of many architect designed houses, or you dreamed of getting a bigger job might be a, a, a suburban library or a school. That was the range of ambitions that I saw and many of my classmates saw at that time. Uh, things are very different now. Um, uh, students um, appreciate the, that they can learn on somebody else's dime in a big office, which is something I never did. I had to kind of teach myself how to be a practicing architect. And Yale was not good at practical details as part of its curriculum. We were trained to be stars. And that was maybe very different from most architecture schools. And certainly Harvard had wonderfully talented students, but the emphasis was on collaborative work. Paul Rudolph um, abhorred collaborative work. He thought the architect uh, with the pencil poised above the paper was the person who made the decisive decisions. Um, and Rudolph maintained a very small office uh, for almost his entire career much to the detriment of, um, I think, his practice. Before we return to Robert, a word from our sponsor, Janice AC. 
In the world of design, an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before. Enter Janus AC. As a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years, the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gabellini Shepard to Piero Lissoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. The Knot Collection is one of those incredible designs that will never go out of style and is versatile enough to work in a warm and traditional home or a starkly modern urban retreat. Engineered to withstand the outdoor elements without fading or fraying, Knot is just as equally suited for casual indoor spaces. This wide-ranging collection, from counter stools and sofas to cocktail tables, is defined by its unique materiality that only Janus AC could deliver on. Each seat and back is tightly hand-woven in olefin rope around a barely-there aluminum frame. The line comes in two colors, a sophisticated modern cream called Fossil and a dark gray called Shale. My personal favorite is the three-seater, ideal for a poolside party or just a quiet nap in the sun. To acquire your own set from this cohesive collection, make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. Can you tell me a little bit about what it was like to be an architect in the 1970s in New York, especially during that period of of rapid decline? Um, Your books at the time talked about balancing you know, modernism and tradition. And I'm wondering if these two things were connected in some way, as if you guys were in this city and the luster of mid-century modernism was sort of falling off. Uh, Were architects kind of looking to find a new way forward? Um, Is that fair to say? Yeah, very fair to say. And there were many impulses. First of all, New York was in a decline. I had worked for a while uh, as part of the municipal government under Mayor Lindsay, who was um, a highly high-minded um, uh, a liberal mayor, but the city, uh, he, he lost control of the city in certain respects, but you had, and you had a declining economic situation. You had the oil crisis and other things, but you also had, um, and this occurred while I was still a student, you had the rise of historic preservation. New Yorkers um, at the lead, of this movement um, were horrified by the destruction of um, townhouses on the Upper East Side. Well, that looked like ladies in tennis shoes, those were dismissed. But when the Pennsylvania station was threatened and then ultimately destroyed, uh, a 50 year old masterpiece of classical architecture and great scale, um, people like Philip Johnson, Aileen Sarin and the widow of the a, a Yale-trained modernist architect, uh, Eliza Parkinson, the daughter uh, uh, of one of the found, three founders of the MoMA Museum of Modern Art and so on, picketed in front of the building, and of course, and Jane Jacobs. So you have this incredible constellation of people and ideas. Holly White, the man who observed how people use cities and, and that crowded cities were a good thing, not a bad thing. And so forth. So all of this was happening, and I was at um, uh, uh, given this one-year fellowship for um, uh, at Philip Johnson's behest uh, at the Architectural League, which was a moribund organization. And uh, my charge was to 
bring it back to life. And I did by having exhibitions on a bi-weekly basis of young architects, many of whom I'd gotten to know uh, among my teachers at Yale, Venturi, Jurgola, Polshek, and so on. And then um, the 40 Under 40 show was the culminating show of my year at the Architectural League. It got a lot of press. Um, it was covered by a young uh, journalist covering the decorating and architecture scene in the, for the New York Times with lots weekly column or spread in the magazine, uh, the New York Times magazine. And the New York Times, I think, was in general much more influential in those days as a tastemaker than it probably is today. So I was wondering if you could explain uh, to the listener um, just what, in your own words, what postmodern architecture is and how this this word and this phase in your life started to pop up in your life. Well, it began to pop up in my life um, uh, because I was increasingly uncomfortable with what we were given as students and young architects as the received wisdom of the previous generations, the abstract, uh, non-referential, uh, non-historical, functionalist modernism that is associated with the Bauhaus, but that's an oversimplification. But in any case, uh, under the influence of Robert Venturi, and uh, whose early uh, text leading to his book, Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture, by its very name, it kind of defines the postmodernist approach that architecture is has lots of different elements in a given building, uh, not just a, a narrow-minded functionalism or a technical technological determinist of, of a physical fabric. So, in any case, um, uh, postmodernism became a at first a kind of teenage tantrum, reacting against all modernism, and I was as guilty of that as many others, but eventually uh, it matured as a movement, um, as an idea, a set of ideas, not only in architecture, but music and art and, um, and literature that said, you go back to go forward. That architecture is not um, uh, just something that is invented every Monday morning anew. So that's what postmodernism is about. And it enriched the discourse because most of us didn't have any work. Remember the 1970s, because of the oil crisis, the stock market had taken a monstrous tumble. Inflation was rampant um, uh, and so forth. So there was not much happening. So we younger architects and um, the architects in their 30s and, and early 40s had the time to think about architecture uh, in a way that actual practice sometimes gets uh, doesn't allow for. With my instinct to my scholarly instinct, my interest in an architect named George Howe, who had once been the chairman of the architecture department at Yale and who was a mentor to Louis Kahn, the hero architect of my generation at that time, uh, uh, I started to research Howe's life, leading to an, a monograph of uh, on him published by Yale in 1975, right in the middle of the postmodernist mo movement. And uh, people appreciated what that book represented, which was to show how Howe himself, in, trained in the Beaux-Arts, 
doing uh, historically based houses in the 20s, changed his direction and became an extreme modernist in the early 30s, and then backtracked and um, reunited his early and later experience together. It was a period of great ferment. I have to say that today, as I cast my eyes across the profession, I don't see that kind of intellectual debate that Peter Eisenman and I and Vincent Scully and Philip Johnson. And, and the amazing thing about Philip is he's, was, you know, he was born in 1906. I was born in 1939. So there was a hell of a distance in age. Um, uh, but he was in there in the trenches arguing these points and enjoying the, um, the rough and tumble of ideas. And how would you, you know, for people that you knew Philip Johnson personally, what was he like as a person? Well, he was uh, incredibly charming, uh, outspoken. He could be, um, I won't say imperious, that's the wrong term, but he let you know what he thought. Um, But he was incredibly curious about what other people, particularly younger architects, and he was uh, something of an architectural chameleon to the extent that as new ideas, um, intellectual ideas and artistic ideas emerged, he tended tended to jump on the bandwagon, um, which we admired because there we had the authority figure uh, on our side. Um, he was also a great art collector, as you know, and a supporter, um, or as you may know, um, a supporter of pop art when it was new. And in some ways, in a postmodernist idea, pop art, say Andy Warhol's work, um, was flew in the face of the abstract expressionist uh, architecture that uh, art that I'm, I, I thought was the cat's pajamas when I was at Yale and, and my colleagues, uh, fellow students all did. Uh, art that was a, came from uh, the gesture of your hand on a canvas. Um, and suddenly Warhol said, no, it's, um, I'll paint a picture of a soup can uh, and, um, I, and use the, the symbols and the, um, uh, turn, the, turn the facts of modern life into the symbols of art. And as you describe in the book, uh, what you know is a big part of your firm today, especially in new new homes. What, how can you describe to the listener modern traditionalism and how that sort of developed in your own career? Well, influenced by um, <clears throat> Vincent Scully's book on the shingle style, something he gave the name to a movement of American domestic architecture in the post Civil War era, which in turn incorporated uh, uh, early architecture, pre, uh, pre-revolutionary American architecture, New England architecture principally, <clears throat> with new programmatic ideas, new scale of buildings to make these amazing houses, which are still treasured by people uh, in New England and San Francisco, and, and in fact, in most parts of the country. So I was... Um, um, uh, I and a few of my colleagues and, and the contemporaries, um, having studied these houses and come to appreciate what they achieved, open spaces inside, double heights, um, rich wall sur- surfaces of wood, dramatic staircases, and so forth. I thought, well, this is a wonderful jumping off point for what people want today. People, not everybody wants to live in a glass house. 
And in fact, most people don't want to live in a glass house, especially if they're forced to work in a glass box. Um, and, and we now, as, uh, as we're now speaking, a lot of younger people are reacting about going against going back to the office if it means sitting in a cubicle like Jack Lemon in, in the apartment in the film uh, uh, in a glass box office building. So anyhow, um, that's what modern traditionalism means, that you go back to go forward. Don't be afraid of what architecture was before you learn from it. And you can see that in um, Philip Johnson said, wrote on a blackboard at Yale, you cannot not know history. Lou Kahn made incredible drawings um, uh, of Rome when he went back to Europe for the first time in 1951, studied, uh, lived at the American Academy, and it changed his architectural life um, uh, from a kind of run-of-the-mill modernism, uh, and it brought him back to the Beaux-Arts training he had had at the University of Pennsylvania in the 1920s. And part of going back to postmodernism for a second, as sort of explained in the book, um, features a sort of a series of so-called late entries to the Chicago Tribune Tower uh, competition, and you were one of them. Um, can you explain what that was and and why it was considered, you know, looking back today, so important in the sort of development of architecture and the industry as it is today? Well, the late entries competition, which I believe was the brainchild of uh, Stanley Tigerman, my friend of going back to Yale, and was a Chicago-based architect, um, it was part of the high moment of postmodernism uh, uh, in the late 70s and, and around 1980. Um, uh, and it, the Chicago Tribune competition came in 1922. I, I don't think we have time to go through it, but it resulted in a, a beautiful Gothic-style skyscraper for the newspaper, but also a plethora of entries from literally around the world in the competition, um, which showed architecture uh, in all its diversity, sometimes crazy things were submitted, but sometimes brilliant premonitory work. And Tigerman thought that it was appropriate to take, to, to reiterate that competition, not on the scale of the first one and not with the real promise of a construct a building, but as an, um, um, shall we say, an intellectual uh, exercise. And he, he got quite a few uh, important architects of my generation and his to prepare schemes. The scheme uh, I prepared um, was uh, to be sheathed in and colored and reflective glass, which was a newish material, was to have the shape of a classical column or and with pilasters and, uh, um, and other elements, which turned out to be quite influential as an idea of where architecture could go. And there were many skyscrapers from the 1980s and 90s that followed that um, classical prototype, but in new materials. But the most important event of that moment was in 1980, when uh, the Italian, the Roman Italian architect, Paolo Portuguese, was given responsibility for what was the first architecture biennale in Venice. Um, the biennales go back way back into the late 19th century, but they almost never had any display of architecture. They were concentrated on painting and sculpture. But this exhibit that Portuguese 
uh, put together with the support of the government, because um, the Biennale is a government project in Italy, um, was amazing because he found, he reopened an old building. It had been a rope factory for the Italian Navy. Um, so it was a very long building so they could make these enormous ropes called the Corderia. And he, he, he cleaned up the building on the Biennale grounds. It had been abandoned for a very long time. And he said this, this the center of it would be a street. And on each side would be facades. He gave a set of uh, strict controls and he assigned them working with a committee um, of which I was part of um, uh, to different architects, Americans and Europeans alike. Um, and you had Gary, you had Rem Kulas, you had me, you had Venturi, Greenberg. Uh, it was astonishing. It was not only that all these facades were different, which are so opposite to the modernist idea of having a uniform architectural aesthetic, but they were around a street. And the recuperation of urbanism and the idea of a street is central to postmodernism, and people don't appreciate it enough. At the heart of that recuperation is the great uh, work of Jane Jacobs, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, um, and her war against Robert Moses uh, in the Greenwich Village battles over highways and roadways in the 1950s and 60s. And when you became uh, dean uh, at Yale for architecture, uh, Reed Kroloff wrote a kind of rather mean editorial about, about your appointment in Architecture Magazine, uh, which he later retracted. And it's you mentioned it in the book. Uh, and what do you think you accomplished with your, with your deeds that convinced people like him that they were wrong? Well, they saw, Reed seemed to think that because I had done a lot of postmodern work, for example, because I was closely associated as an architect and for a while even a board member of the Walt Disney Company, um, somehow that I um, uh, had no sense of what it means to be a, an educator. I think he was bloody wrong because I'd been teaching since 1970, so I'd been either faking it very well. Reed, at that moment, um, was too immersed in his own point of view. When he went on to himself lead an architecture school, uh, it, it didn't work out because you, when you're an educator, when you're the head of a school, you're not the head of a kind of religious order. You are head of an enterprise which should nurture many points of view. The great thing about Yale in particular, um, when I was a student as opposed to Harvard, and then when I became uh, well, for a long time, even before I became dean, is that it didn't support a singular point of view. Other architects uh, tended to support one or another point of view, but it was an open to, the, uh, um, and, and people thought that Yale and maybe I had no point of view, but that's not true. I have a point of view, which is to have, um, to be uh, willing to explore different ideas and to encourage people in their thinking um, uh, to um, mature. Of course, I want to influence them. Uh, I wanted to get people to be more attentive to the classical tradition. I brought classical studios back to Yale, which hadn't been there in a long time. But I also uh, I brought a sense of uh, higher, I would say, purpose to the education process, including um, uh, making it possible for students to travel with their teachers as part of 
design studios. Um, so you can't just sit in front of a drawing board or a computer um, and, and, and work in a vacuum. You have to see the site, see the world, and you can't go around just on your own as a student. What do you know to how to, how to look, how to experience the world? A more mature and experienced architect greeting you can be of crucial value. So anyhow, Reed changed his mind. Can you tell me about your, your friendship with Zaha Hadid, um, who you hired to teach at Yale? Because I didn't know that you guys were, were friends. What was that like? Well, Zaha was an amazing person. She died way too young. Um, uh, just as her career was really peaking, in a way, her exit moment was well-timed because the demand for extraordinary buildings such as she, she designed um, has reduced has been reduced in this uh, economically COVID era. But Zaha was, first of all, I like people. She was a wonderful, warm person. She had a great talent. She didn't do anything that I liked in a way. I mean, I didn't want to be, I wouldn't want to live in a Zaha world, but I would be, the world would be very much depleted without the Zahas of the world. Um, uh, and um, her passion for her students, certainly at Yale, was incredible. Um, she was beloved, um, difficult, uh, highly opinionated. Um, her opinions about students, well, she was tended to be supportive of students, but her opinions about her colleagues in the profession were world-class zingers. Um, so I admired her in a hundred different ways. Nothing would be more fun than having a meal with Zaha, but I don't have to agree with everyone. She didn't have to agree with me. Um, there are other architects I could name of her stature, or mine for that matter, who cannot see the work of other architects, can only see their own uh, little niche in the profession. I, I, I have less tolerance for those people. And you wrote a series of books on architecture history uh, about New York. And I'm wondering, you know, what you've thought about the boom of the past decade um, in New York and especially in Manhattan when it comes to these sort of ultra luxury condos and giant me mega projects like Hudson Yards. What, what would you are you someone who's, you know, think that from an urban point of view that New York City is on the right track? Well, first of all, my books on New York history, which started as part of um, an essay as part of a book that Columbia published to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the School of Architecture in 1880, 1981, when I was on the faculty. But I've tried to keep my books not to be polemical, but to be um, inclusive, to show all the different trends, to explain them, to uh, describe buildings, um, uh, bring buildings to attention of the reader uh, that um, may have fallen from the, the canon, shall we say. Um, uh, I, when I finished New York 2000 with my fellow authors, Dave, David Fishman and Jacob Tava, I had the idea that I would never do one of those books again. I'd done five beginning documenting the city from the Civil War era to the millennium. But so much has happened in the, what's happening in the early part of this 21st century that I felt, well, it was time to do one more. So I, with David and Jake, are busily at work at New York, what will be called New York 2020, will probably be published in a year and a half or two. But 
Um, of course, I'm very interested in what Hudson Yards is about. And of course, I'm interested in the tall buildings, um, particularly along the south end of Central Park. But I've been the architect of some of those buildings myself. So I can't possibly express with um, uh, uh, my opinion uh, on them, except to say that look at my buildings and see what how I reacted to the conditions that gave rise to those tendencies, to those trends. How much is Hudson Yards like or not like Rockefeller Center is an interesting comparison. But I think the readers will have to make up their minds or New Yorkers, um, observers in general, will have to make up their minds as Hudson Yards, which is still in the works, um, comes forward. So you're not going to get me on that one. And, you know, one of the great challenges that the country faces uh, mostly, you know, in our big cities is sort of lack of affordable housing, um, which has sort of gotten in some places, you know, worse and worse, even now during the pandemic. Um, if you were sort of anointed king for a day, you know, what kind of policies would you want to see enacted to kind of tackle this issue of housing? Oh, my God. I, I, I think that uh, we have to tackle it in many ways. Um, and, uh, but uh, from the physical planning point of view, segregating people by economic groups is not a healthy thing. In my youth, Park Avenue apartment had tenements right around the corner. And there's a famous play from the 30s called Street Scene that makes that vivid. And, and, and dead-end kids were, were in the movies and probably on the stage. But by Moses' time, Robert Moses' time, building all, maybe with the best of intentions, building these huge... Um, housing estates uh, didn't help. Say, uh, filing people away by income groups, um, not supplying any backup for social welfare, uh, mental health, and all that. So it's not just an architectural problem by any means, but um, uh, how to unpack some of these things. Maybe Lucia tried to, un we tried to take down some of the, and Chicago did a better job, take down some of these big housing projects and replace them with lower scale mixed use projects. Um, so that's one strategy. But um, I think part of the problem, the homelessness is of course economic, but part of it is uh, education and mental health and, and, and not a treating people, affording them the kind of care they deserve and, and need. As I look in magazines, I'm rattling on probably be beyond my time, but as I look in magazines and what's going on, I mean, young architects are still, are not still, but are once again, too preoccupied with individual self-expression, too obsessed with the role of uh, computer technology, um, which can liberate form to an extraordinary level, but doesn't tend to bring along the, um, the, the needs, the emotional and physical needs in the best possible way of people who are not in control of their destinies, who are not built, who are not living on uh, fleeing the city for the Hudson River Valley, but who are still back here uh, needing um, uh, to be housed and uh, and and um, uh, uh, and they and appreciated for whom they are and given a chance to fulfill their best possible destinies. High high high-minded statement up on a soapbox. I'll try to get off my soapbox. Uh, I have one more question for you uh, before we run out of time. Um, 
you know, you've worked on this uh, memoir for many years. And when someone reads the entire thing and puts it back on the shelf, um, what would you want them to, to really take away as an understanding from this book? Oh, well, I think I, I would like them to appreciate the fact that architecture is not just making pretty buildings, that architecture is a holistic discipline. You make architecture by reacting to the world and its circumstances and helping to shape the world and its circumstances. That also architecture is about uh, um, having a little gumption, uh, about sticking your neck out, about uh, taking complicated and difficult and often unpopular positions. Advocating for the past in 1970 um, was not popular. People thought I was a reactionary. I'm not a reactionary, but I am a believer in the past. I'm, I believe in evolution, not revolution. If they read the book, and if they read the book, they're, my hat's off to them. Um, I, I hope they'll see that, you know, from uh, a nice Jewish boy from Brooklyn can um, make a serious contribution to the wider world all around the world, not be, not be boxed in by... Um, a beginning. A beginning is a beginning, but it's not the de definition of who you are all through your life. It's part. It's the foundation for your life as you go along. Thank you to Robert, Leo Velardi, and the entire teams at Ramza and Monticelli for making this episode happen. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at The Grand Tourist. Net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time. Mm -hmm.